Welcome back to Ideas Matter. I'm Alistair Donald, convener of Living Freedom, the initiative for young adults to explore the ideas and the ideals of freedom. You can find out more about the various events run by Living Freedom by visiting our website, livingfreedom.org.uk. At the moment, we're busy planning the next summer school, which will be in central London, running from the 29th of June to the 1st of July. Anyone aged 18 to 30 can attend, so do visit the website and apply to come along. One topic we'll explore at the summer school is artificial intelligence and the implications of technological advances such as ChatGPT for what it means to be human. To get us in the mood, this was the issue we looked at in our Freedom Forum that took place this week in London. Here, in this podcast, we feature the opening remarks from that forum on the history of artificial intelligence and some of the questions raised by advances in the field. The speaker is Sandy Starr, Deputy Director of Progress Educational Trust. 1837 was an important year for generative AI, Uh, uh, as well as being the beginning of the Victorian era, the year Victoria inherited the British throne. It was the year that uh, Le Jeune de Richelieu, a German mathematician who for some reason had a French name, (laughs) properly formalised the idea of a function. That's something that takes in a numerical value as its input and spits out a numerical value as its output. It's not going to uh, write an article for you or make a pretty picture for you or do your homework for you, but it's a start. And 1837 is also the year when the English polymath Charles Babbage began work on his analytical engine precursor to the modern electronic computer. And Babbage and his mathematician colleague Ada Lovelace, in her elaboration uh, of his ideas, uh, between them came up with something that, that in a sense was the world's first ever computer program, something that takes in a coded command as its input and gets a device to perform a task or series of tasks as its output, which is a bit closer to what we're talking about this evening. Ada Lovelace is a very interesting thinker uh, in relation to AI. Um, For one thing, she coined a beautiful phrase to describe what she wanted to do with technology, the phrase poetical science, which is a very poignant phrase if you know that her father was was Lord Byron. And I find this idea of um, this phrase poetical science very useful for describing and thinking about generative AI because of the evocations and the questions and the sort of contradictions that the the phrase throws up. And Ada Lovelace also had an interestingly nuanced view of what an analytical engine might, or its successor, uh, might achieve. You know, on the one hand, she thought it might be used to create art, in her words, to compose uh, elaborate and scientific pieces of music. But at the same time, she cautioned that the analytical engine was not a creator of entirely original work. She said, uh, again I quote, it has no pretensions whatever to originate anything. And she also said, its province is to assist us in making available what we are already acquainted with. So these are very interesting and perceptive statements, especially taken together. And I think it's quite fitting that two of the models in the GPT-3 family of large language models that led to chat GPT are named Ada and Babbage in honour of these pioneers. Now, it would take 100 years for another English polymath, Alan Turing, 
to come up with a sort of rigorous model of how computers and computer programs work. That's something Turing did during the 1930s. But something interesting happened during those hundred years that separated the invention of the computer from the full realisation of the computer, and that was the invention of Markov chains, which are present in most of the technology underpinning modern generative AI, including ChatGPT. Uh, Markov chains are a way of drawing probabilistic connections and dependencies between two or more distinct things. And then when you step back and consider the resulting picture, what you see involves a subtle interplay of predictability and randomness. And that sort of interplay between predictability and randomness is still, in a sense, at the heart of generative AI today. Alan Turing actually foresaw this. Uh, he said that if we ever wanted to create a machine that could be said to learn, then in his words, it is probably wise to include a random element. But Markov chains predate Turing, and they're quite relevant to a living freedom discussion, because the Russian mathematician after whom they're named, Andrei Andreevich Markov Sr., invented them in 1906 in order to defeat an argument for the existence of human free will. Which sounds terrible. <laughs> but I assure you it's better in context, because what he was doing with his Markov chains was defeating an argument by a rival thinker who claimed that there was entirely mathematical evidence for the existence of human free will. And I think he did us a bit of a favour defeating that argument, because much as I love mathematics and much as I love free will, I think the former is quite ill-suited to proving the existence of the latter. The other thing that was done by Andrei Andreevich Markov Sr., I have to keep calling him that because his son had the same name and his father had almost the same name. The other thing he did a few years later in 1913 was have a go at using his Markov chains to do an early AI type exercise himself. He analysed the first 20,000 characters of Alexander Pushkin's great verse novel, uh, Eugene Onegin. And I mean the first 20,000 typographical characters, not 20,000 fictional people. <laughs> that would have been War and Peace. <laughs> uh, and what he did is he created a Markov chain that sort of codified the likelihood of a consonant being followed by a vowel or a vowel being followed by a consonant in the writing of Pushkin. Uh, this is a very literal example of someone doing Ada Lovelace's poetical science. And this, this is in a very rudimentary form what ChatGPT is doing today if you ask it to try writing something in the style of Pushkin or whomever. But Markov was working this out painstakingly by hand using just two parameters, uh, consonant-to-vowel probability and vowel-to-consonant probability. Whereas ChatGPT is doing it using computers and using 170 billion parameters, actually currently being scaled up to 170 trillion parameters. And that buys you a slightly more coherent virtual zombie pushkin, <laughs> but not the genuine article who remains stubbornly unproductive uh, in his grave in Pskrovskaya Oblast. <laughs> So the lesson here is that when people are getting very unsettled by a, a, a far-reaching new technology that seems to be advancing very quickly, it's always worth pausing for breath and looking at the history that led us here. It can't help but be enlightening. So where is this poetical science today? Well, on the input side, we can, we can now submit inputs in natural human language. Uh, there have been search and answer tools that can do this for a long time, 
whether it's Ask Jeeves or Wolfram Alpha. But now we have uh, generative AI tools that can take prompts in natural human language, not dissimilar to the way I'm talking now. And this is quite a game changer. It's why they've taken off. On the output side, we have tools that can give you natural human language back, like ChatGPT or Bard. We have tools that can generate static images as output, like Stable Diffusion or Midjourney or, or DALI. We have tools that are coming along that can generate moving images, that can generate music, that involve facial recognition or facial synthesis or voice recognition or voice synthesis, or that can create photorealistic images of people who've never actually existed which is eerie to say the least. And importantly, we have uh, tools again, including ChatGPT and Bard, that can take natural human language inputs and generate programming code as outputs. And people are finding this extremely useful. So what are the implications of all this for freedom? Well, there are philosophical questions about what it means to be human, about what uh, can and cannot be accomplished by non-humans. And these remain as fascinating now as they were in 1837 or 1906 or 1913, but they're perhaps starting to feel rather closer to home. There are questions about art and creativity, um, questions of originality, influence, uh, livelihood, laziness, and whether a legal or moral wrong is done to a creator if you include their work in the data set on which an AI is trained. There are whole new disciplines and professions and academic specialisms dedicated to thinking about what could go wrong with AI and trying to avert disaster. I'm thinking of fields like AI ethics, AI safety, algorithmic auditing, and the rather sinister sounding value alignment. <laughs> and uh, experts in these fields, are they friends or foes of freedom? Well, they can be either. They can be both at the same time. Uh, value alignment is a case in point. In theory, it means getting AI to behave in a way that aligns with prevailing social values. But it's a perilously small step from that idea to the idea of getting the AI to get other people to align with your values. There is a lot of litigation being pursued in this area. There's a lot of regulation being proposed or implemented at various levels. Just last week, the, the European Union's uh, Data Protection Board um, announced a new task force dedicated specially to looking at issues arising from ChatGPT. And it's also interesting to look at the EU's AI Act, drafted two years ago. Depending on your perspective, this is either a much-needed initiative to regulate a frightening and dangerous new world of technology or it's a presumptuous, stultifying, innovation-killing power grab. But what's interesting is that the recent popularity of generative AI um, seems to have caught the EU off guard. Generative AI does not fit neatly into the categories of the Draft AI Act, and there are attempts to resolve this mismatch at the moment in a restrictive direction by designating popular generative AI high-risk in the terms of this draft legislation, but there's also a strong pushback against it and there's a big row about this going on in Brussels right now. Then there's self-regulation, which is interesting. And I'm particularly interested in OpenAI, the company that made ChatGPT and made DALI. They published a 60-page document last month called the System Card for the GPT-4 family of large language models. And I've read this document and 
There are things in it that annoy, annoy me, and there are things in it with which I disagree. But when I read the examples it gave of how a GPT-4 chatbot responded to requests for help and advice to do various dangerous or depraved or destructive things, or to kill or injure oneself or others, initially I found myself relatively relaxed about the fact that the version of uh, GPT-4 that's being let loose on the world is the version with safeguards. It's not the preliminary test version. But then I thought, I wondered if I was being naive, because I remember 25 years ago defending a little company called Google and its core product, the PageRank search algorithm, also incidentally based on a Markov chain, uh, because people were getting very upset that this was letting anyone in the world look up whatever horrible or controversial stuff they wanted. And Google, at least back then, was doing a half-decent job of standing up for free speech. Does generative AI deserve any less? Does poetical science deserve any less? So on that note, I will leave you with two questions. First, if limits are being placed on the range of possible future outputs of a, of a generative AI tool, is that less of a problem? than limits being placed on people's ability to speak or to access the speech of others. And question number two, if these limits are being set, does it matter who sets them? Does it matter, for example, whether they're set by the EU, whether they're set by a company like OpenAI, which, if you'll forgive the crude shorthand, is a woke company, but by California standards, very mildly so, it could have been much worse. <laughs> you tell me. Thanks for listening. A reminder, you can find out more about Living Freedom at a website, livingfreedom.org.uk, where you can see how to join us in our Cambridge and Oxford events on the 26th of April and 3rd of May, respectively. And you can also find out how to apply for our summer school taking place in central London on the 29th of June to the 1st of July. Hope to see you there, and Ideas Matter will be back soon.